Uh, I'm going to read two or three verses of scripture and I will fill in the story as we go. Mark chapter 9 and we're going to look at uh, verses 21. I'll be reading from the common English version. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been going on? He said, since he was a child, it has often thrown him into the fire or into the water trying to kill him. If you can do anything, help us. Show us compassion. Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. At the boy's father cried out, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. Noticing that the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke clean spirit. Mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out and never enter him again. After screaming and shaking the boy horribly, the spirit came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people said he had died. But Jesus took his hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Would you bow your head for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We thank you for a seminary that finds it wise and fitting and just to honor a man committed to just us. Allow us to go from this place knowing that you are requiring us to be the best we can be in a world that needs us so badly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. Amen. For the time that's ours, I'd like to share with you from this thought. After the mountaintop, confronting problematic practical theology. After the mountaintop. You know, I'm a scholar. I have to give you a little bit more in the title. I can't just give it to you. Confronting problematic practical theology. Martin Luther King remains one of the most influential practical theologians of all time. He wore so many hats for us in the public sphere. He was a moral leader. He was a preacher. He was a scholar. But for the purposes of our time today, I would like to frame him as a practical theologian. He is someone who took seriously what it meant to apply our faith. Dr. King, he made an indelible imprint upon our social imagination because he was able to take the tools of theological education and fashion them into a very functional, practical life source and energy source for the masses of people who he led. Dr. King, in being this moral leader and being this practical theologian, some of his most withering critiques were against a country who did not live up to their theological or their political beliefs. He was dismayed at how we dropped bombs on Vietnam and leaving emaciated and radiated children to die in rice paddies in Laos. He was disappointed when the city of Memphis did not live up to its desire to make sure those who were in the sanitation field are accounted for. He was enraged by far and near. wanted us to live into the values that we proclaim. If we're Christians, where is your Christian love? 
If you're an American, where is your sense of freedom? His most withering critiques, some would argue, were toward clergy. He, he had two groups in particular. One, he had the white liberal clergy, who he said were more of an impediment than the Ku Klux Klan. He said because their understanding of time and progressivism and how things will eventually get better actually impedes the freedom progress, as he penned from the letter from the Birmingham jail. He was dismayed because they would not live into the Christian faith they espoused. Now, these ministers, these white liberal ministers who meant well, they went to good schools, but they were the temperature gauge of a larger social imagination that was intolerant of the type of justice that Jesus proclaimed. Now he started to meddling, as they say. Dr. King, being a moral leader, a practical theologian, chastising us and challenging us to go further, go farther, really be Christians. I imagine that his frustration with the ministers of his day was in line with the frustration Jesus felt at the time of this text because Jesus, Peter, James, and Paul, Peter, G, Peter, James, John, Jesus. If you're going to get it right, get it right in seminary. These gentlemen were at the top of a mountain. This is what I love about Jesus being the ultimate practical theologian. Jesus being the model of what it means to be practical in ministry. Jesus, I imagine, his seminary curriculum functioned in two ways. There was the mountaintop portion, and then there was the valley portion. So we see Jesus' pedagogy begin to develop. We, we see that in the mountaintop is where he took those three so they can gain and learn on top of this hill. They can sit around and revel in the deep philosophical mysteries on the hill. They could sit around and ponder and muse about the great things that God is doing in our little nook in the world. I like Peter. Peter said, can we just build a house, a little hut, and just hang out here because this is what life should be like. I like the revelation and the impartation. I like to learn and to muse with like-minded people. But Jesus had to rebuke Peter and say, hey, real ministry is in the valley. Real ministry is in the valley. Jesus takes them down from this beautiful experience where they were able to go and witness things that were so great. Jesus even said, shh, you can't tell anybody. And upon their arrival down to the valley, they find a quarrel. They find noise. They find what life is like in the valley. When you're doing practical ministry, oftentimes when you enter into that space, you're going to enter into conflict and confusion and disappointment and frustration and onlookers as they descend down to the mountain to see the other nine. Jesus inquires, what's the problem? A man rushes forth and says, I brought my son to you. But your disciples aren't able to heal. 
him. Oh, this is distressing because Jesus being the practical theologian, he's realized that his disciples, his students have failed their practical theology practicum. They have matriculated with Jesus for a time, and when the test arose, their ability to perceive led them to not properly diagnose and attend to the acute ailment of this young boy. So the father, frustrated and desperate, saying, Jesus, can you help? Because your disciples have let me down. My sisters and my brothers, I'm, I'm disappointed and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little nervous. I've had the good fortune to teach in schools. This is my fifth one now. I feel extremely fortunate to have te- taught across denominational spectrums. I've grown up across more denominations than I've taught in. So I've had a chance to see a lot of things. But I'm distressed because the theological education that I'm seeing is problematic. It emphasizes these mountaintop experiences, but it's not properly adapting these students to life in the valley. I'm concerned, my sisters and brothers. There are people dying every day. But if you venture into certain spaces, these conversations never bubble up as if the real world is an intrusion upon this world. I'm I'm concerned. Who are we forming in the crux of this theological education? Jesus, his disappointment was in the fact that these disciples should have been able to handle this situation. But they were unable. They were unable to take the theological education, the mountaintop, and merge it with what it means to do it in real time. Jesus being frustrated and disappointed, saying, how long will I suffer with you? Something something my grandmother would say. (laughs) How long am I going to contend with those who I've I've poured so much into? But this is what we're doing. Now, this is why I surmise that they were unable to cast out this particular demonic situation. I surmise that they were unable to cast out this demon because that demon is an embodied form of what they were struggling with. Like met like. So darkness couldn't cast out darkness. Doubt couldn't cast out doubt. They met their match because they were unable with all that they knew. They didn't have the power to make the difference. They didn't have the power, the ability to generate change. This this desire to make change, oftentimes we mean well as theologians. Our hope is a hope that is often very intellectual, very heady. But Jesus is disappointed because he's saying that doesn't put bread on the table. That doesn't feed people when they're hungry and clothe them when they're naked. And I can't be with you always. 
You've got to get this now. And this spirit shook and convulsed. This spirit, I find this spirit interesting. It functions akin to how racism functions. You're unable to speak and communicate. You can't hear what someone else is saying. And at any given moment, you froth at the mouth and become rigid in mind or body. At uncontrollable things, it seems as if this boy is tottering between life and death, between being alive but not living. He's tottering. He's not even in control of his body. It's akin to our body politic. It seems to be frothing at the mouth, spazzing, saying all types of ill things, allowing all types of actions to reign and to pervade. The body politic is shaking and convulsing. The text says that the, that the spirit will try to throw the boy in the water and throw him in the fire, try to dash him down to destroy him. It seems that our country has been doused with water as the Native Americans are standing rock, trying to hold on to their stuff, doused by water. People dying in the Atlantic Ocean, millions of slave bodies there. This body politic we call America is birthed in blood. Let us never forget Now it shakes and convulses, waiting for a sign of hope. This seminary body shakes and sees. Quiet tensions and passive-aggressive frustrations continue to chip away at the life of this place. So how can we cast out the darkness in the world when we have not attended to what pervades our mental and spiritual imagination. Jesus is dismayed. Martin Luther King was dismayed because they realized that the disciples couldn't do it. Those who spent time away, sequestered with Jesus in intimate spaces, if they couldn't do it, they spent three years studying this stuff. And Jesus is about to transition. They're about to graduate. This is what I love about Jesus. Jesus in this text functions as a form of disruptive grace. Jesus disrupts the dysfunction of the boy. The boy was not in control of himself. His father, I'm sure, had to systematize some sort of care for the spasmatic function of what's going on with this child. Dysfunction became function. As long as we're able to keep going, then we're functioning. But when Jesus intercedes into a situation, maybe what we call function is then brought into question because Jesus then snatches authority by saying, you come out, come out. But this is what is interesting, that the body goes through one more fit. It seems as if that spirit goes through one more convulsion before it relinquishes its control over the boy. Our body politic convulses and shakes as we seek to figure out which ways to go. And the world is looking for the church 
The world is looking for the disciples of Jesus who set themselves apart to be able to be practical in this world and not allow the deafness and the muteness and the rigidity of how we've seen things to arrest the power that Jesus has placed inside of each and one of us. Jesus lifts the boy up. I like that. He lifts the boy up from a place in which he was not even in control of himself. But Jesus' hand signaled the transition between living and life. As he lifts him up, he goes from living and existing into life and that more abundant. He gets a chance to run like other young people and to build a future. Jesus was intent on lifting him up and restoring him to the full capacity of his limbs. But lastly, Jesus was disruptive of grace because his disciples actually learned something. They, they went to him after class. <laughs> and they said, Jesus, why weren't we able to, to, why didn't we pass? I mean, you didn't even grade on the curve. Like, we all <laughs> failed. Like, like we, there was no grace. Jesus being the, the ever-ready professor, uh, he ascribed a homework. He said, this type, because some things are stubborn, they're, they're deep-rooted, they're systemic, they're, they're encrusted in ingrained ways of seeing the world, ways of doing things, the tribalism that keeps us apart. Those things are ingrained and encrusted, and Jesus is saying, no, no, not at all. There's hope. Because with the power, you can do things. And that power comes from prayer and fasting. Not reading more books. Not sit around and musing. But Jesus said an active faith, a faith that does things. Because faith is active, it has power. So if we're going to make a difference in the world, we have to have an active faith. A faith that gets up and does things. I'm concerned for seminaries that produce people who know more about coffee than we do about street ministry. I'm concerned. Because if we're not concerned about the world, I guarantee the world will not be concerned about us. And that is a heresy. That's a sin and a shame. But I don't stand here defeated. I stand here hopeful. Let me tell you why I stand here hopeful. I'm hopeful because each and every one of you are here. And each and every one of you make a choice to be here. And because God makes room for you to be here, there's obviously something for your life to do. And because we're here together and we're able to dream together and to live together, God is inviting us into something special. And I'm grateful to be here with you. I am glad, and I hope that we find joy in being with each other. Want to know why? Because we are all we have. We are all we have. 
we are being asked by God to take our theology out of the mountaintop and to apply it in the valley of the human condition. It's an invitation. We're also being compelled and commanded. Hmm. When you close your eyes, what do you see? When we talk about God's justice, what do you see? Not your political faction, not your, your, your Democratic or Republican leanings, but when we say God's justice, what does that look like? Let me tell you what it looks like to me. It looks like everybody can have something to eat. It looks like everybody can have some place to live. It looks like everybody has a place to be themselves. It looks like a place where people are not enslaved by the debt system and able to live fulfilling lives, pursuing what brings about them joy and fulfillment. I believe in these things. Dr. King believed in these things. But good is not going to good itself alone. I challenge you today to address the problematic practical theology that rests inside of each of us as we go out and become a blessing to the world that we've been called to.